Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. And the winner for our latest giveaway, Mishanomics by David Simon, is John of Pricing Profits in Australia. Congratulations, John. Thank you for listening to the Economic Rockstar Podcast. Today's episode is an absolute blast. Jason Shogren, Professor of Economics from the University of Wyoming, is a Nobel Peace Prize winner and is so passionate about the environment. He's also a fantastic singer-songwriter and he will be sharing with us some of his music in this episode. This is an absolute treat for all our economic rockstar listeners. So why not turn up the volume and here's Jason talk about cap-and-trade markets, rationality, music, soft paternalism and endogenous risk. I have a special treat for subscribers where I'll be sharing some of Jason's music in a bonus episode just sent directly to your email inbox. Head straight over to economicrockstar.com and you can subscribe on the homepage. Thanks for listening and enjoy this episode. It's definitely not a closed form model, but I mean, songwriting has its structures and its forms that are you could easily translate into um you know guidelines and rules and math models just like we do in economics so uh, to me their arts and science are i don't even know if they're yin and yang to me they just go parallel and spill over all over each other you know a lot of musicians really have not had much economic training in terms of trade-offs and scarcity and once they start describing all their problems i'm like well that's exactly what we do and we study in terms of you've set up a constraint and now people got to figure their way out of it in your song here and now they've come up with some creative solution. Well, that's exactly what we do in economics. And they're like, oh, but you do it in math. And I said, well, sometimes, yeah. I spent a month hitchhiking in Ireland way back in 85 and I started up, of all places, in Larn, went up through the causeway, then all the way down the whole West Coast. And uh, it was a great month of hitchhiking and Guinness and rain and people and adventure. Yeah, so I'm, I'm ready to come again. Hi, Frank Conway here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar Podcast. I am so honored to have Jason Shogren join me today. Hi, Jason. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Frank. Jason Shogren is the Stroop Professor of Natural Resource Conservation and Management and the Chair of the Department of Economics and Finance at the University of Wyoming. Professor Shogren's background and research interests include the economics of environmental and natural resource policy, experimental methods, endangered species, invasive species, climate change, agricultural and forest management, energy health regulation and paleoeconomics. Jason has been named a Fellow of the Association of Environmental and Resource Economists the nation's preeminent professional society for environmental economists and policy. He served as the professor to Sweden's King Carl Gustav XVI in 2012 and is a 2007 Nobel Peace Prize winner, shared with ex-Vice President Al Gore. He has also served as a senior economist on the Council of Economic Advisors in the White House under the Clinton administration. Professor Shogren's teaching include global economic issues, natural resource and environmental economics, environmental risk and conflict and experimental economics. Jason is well published with over 200 articles and is the author and editor-in-chief of numerous books, including Encyclopedia on Resource, Environmental and Energy Economics, Experimental Auctions and Fat Economics, Nutrition, Health and Economic Policy. Jason loves fishing and music. 
He spends his time composing acoustic roots songs that he describes as Catawampus American Music, has five albums and will be touring this summer. Jason, you have such an extensive CV, extremely impressive, and I'd love to know how you get so much done, especially when you have such a passion in music also. Well, that's a fair question. I think it's because I spend so much time working with students, which is uh, probably a lot of folks say working with students is the best part of the job, but I know for me it has been because I've worked with a lot of students here at Wyoming and and at Iowa State in their PhD program, but especially here. And it really is a pleasure to work with all these guys. I calculated the other day, the graduate director asked me, well, how many Wyoming PhDs have you published papers with? And I think it's like 30, 30 of them or 34 of them, masters and PhDs. And I think we've published 130 papers together. And to me, it's part of the team, part of the fun. And so getting a lot done means having a lot of good co-authors. And You're from Wyoming originally. No, I grew up in uh, near Duluth, Minnesota. And uh, I moved out to Wyoming in 82 and got my PhD here and then left for a decade. And I got a chance to move back here in 95, and we had lived in different places around the United States, and we spent a year in Sweden, and we jumped at the chance to come back, and we've been here for the most part since 95, so almost 20 years now. You've grown up in, I suppose, in more of a a natural environment or in tune with nature more so than in a city landscape, and I'm sure that's where a lot of your background or your influences come from, because looking at your research... And as I mentioned, it's all about the environment and protection of animals. Yeah, I grew up in a town originally of about 800 people and moved to the big town of 8,000. And But at the same time, we had a lot of roots at the hunting shack or at the cabin in northern Minnesota. I was probably more interested in the environment and nature, per se, than I was in economics. But my intellectual background sort of led to economics and When I was leaving my undergraduate degree at the University of Minnesota Duluth, they had just hired a guy from Wyoming who specialized in environmental economics, which I had not heard of at the time. And then after two years of doing an assortment of odd jobs all around, I applied at uh, Wyoming, was the only place I applied there in, in Minnesota at the time in the econ department that weren't interested in environmental, and Wyoming was, and so I ended up coming out here and best choice I made a long time ago. Would you have a particular influencer then that you would accredit to putting you on this particular path of studying environmental economics? Um, when I got here, there were two guys, uh, Ralph Darge and Tom Crocker. And I started working with Ralph and then I moved on, started working with Tom. And during my graduate program, I spent a year in Stockholm and I spent time with Peter Bohm and Carl Urim Mailer. And by the time I went to write my dissertation, and then the five years after, I would say Tom Crocker and Peter Bohm just sort of nurtured me and listened to my crazy ideas and tried to, you know, focus a young, energetic guy. And they did a great job of just getting me to answer questions about why things mattered and what did matter. And so the only reason I have done as well as I have done is those two guys, Tom Crocker for sure here at Wyoming and Peter Bohm at the University of Stockholm. When I was doing my research, I came across a quote by Professor Tom Crocker about yourself. He said that you were certainly one of the very best professors in resource economics 
that he was your chair, but he got to the point where he was actually learning from you. That's a fantastic compliment to pay on somebody. And I know you're quite humble as a person or from what I've read, you, you don't really take all of these accolades to heart and let them roll off your sleeve. But that's pretty much the ultimate compliment. Yeah, well, I agree. I mean, it, it's an honor, but I think that's the way the process is supposed to go. You know, Tom let me stand on his shoulders. And, and then uh, same thing for the students that we've had come through here. The whole idea is to keep putting people on your shoulders and move them up so they can do better than you. And Tom gave me that foundation by essentially asking, like I say, questions. Why and why does this matter? And coming back to the fundamentals every time. I would start to stray, and hopefully I can do the same to the students for here at Wyoming as well. And we've had a good crop that over the last 20 years of students, and I'm, I'm very proud of them. A recent guest of mine, David Simon, he wrote a book called Meshonomics, and he discusses the impact cows have on the environment in terms of carbon emissions. And you also look at climate change. And when you talk about carbon emissions, you're more talking about the impact that the oil industry and other industries would have on the environment. And who should actually pay for this externality? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, Wyoming exports more energy to the other 47 contiguous states than anywhere in the world. We've got enough coal to run the U.S. economy for a couple hundred years. We've got natural gas. We've got oil. So we're very focused in on the energy sector and what it means. And so for figuring out how to pay for essentially planet insurance by taking out, paying a price for our carbon emissions today, it really does boil down to... Um, and I believe this for the last 20 years, adding a carbon tax on like they have in Sweden or like they have in Norway and figuring out what to invest that money, whether it's in renewable resources or in transportation, mass transportation. I, I just don't think even here at a state like Wyoming, even though I understand that carbon is what drives our economy, um, we still have to figure out a plan B because there is no, as they say, planet B. And putting up a price on carbon has been the way to push this because trying to set up global cap and trade markets is just too hard, as you guys in the, in the EU have seen, when you set up a cap and trade market and allow the supply to just increase based on lots of different things. You know, you're driving the price to zero and you don't really have any scarcity anymore. And that was kind of defeats the purpose of having a cap and trade system. Would you think this cap-and-trade system is quite effective, especially when we talk about larger populations like India and China now demanding a lot more energy? Yeah, if we can actually enforce a carbon-constrained world through cap-and-trade, that's going to be great. But in order to really capture the benefits, you have to have a global market, given a molecule released here or in India or in China all has the same basic impact on risk. And so... Setting up smaller cap-and-trade systems for carbon, I mean, they can work. You know, the question is, can we integrate into a global market? And that's when you really get the cost savings that people are looking for. And it might be easier to set up a carbon tax if that's what you're really aiming for, That essentially that low price that a global cap-and-trade would imply, you know, anywhere from $10 a ton to $20 a ton. 
And it might be easier if you can get the tax passed. That's always been the tricky part. Way back when, the year I spent at the White House was during the Kyoto Protocol run-up, and that was a big argument about cap-and-trade versus tax inside the White House. And it came down to cap-and-trade winning the day, even though I'd say the majority of economists were still just arguing for a carbon tax. So I kind of lean that way. I, I like cap and trade for smaller things and, you know, rivers. I like cap and trade for when you can actually set up the market and make it work without a lot of hoping that you have to have lots of buyers and sellers. Then it really, really does pay off. And, you know, our SO2 cap and trade system was uh, proof of that. And removing lead from gasoline seemed to work as well. Carbon, I'm a little less enthralled for cap and trade. People are always incentivized to possibly overproduce because they see larger benefits there and other people may see a smaller cost, say, to society. So when you have like something like the coast theorem effect that might be going on where the polluter might decide to pay the person or the society who are actually being harmed by the type of emissions there's always that incentive to continue and pollute. And we see that in some economies, especially emerging economies. And we've had it in Ireland. We've accepted companies into the country when we wanted to develop as an economy because some of these countries might actually pollute with the high emissions. And we do want to do that in order to grow as an economy. And then when we get more developed, we can transition to other types of industries. So there's always that incentive at a policy level to accept certain emissions. There was a Chinese diplomat, you know, 15 years ago, who put it best, he, you know, when he was talking to the U.S. and the EU and talking about, you guys are talking about reducing luxury emissions and you're asking us to reduce survival emissions. And when you have that kind of dichotomy between a growing economy who wants to attain a standard of living that we have, yeah, the politics are pretty clear, you know, that they're going to use the fossil fuels and if they can leapfrog over them, great, but... If they're the cheapest way to increase standard of living, it's hard-pressed to blame them as that's their focus unless they can find something cheaper. But slowing down the economies, India and China, that's huge. That's going to be a huge task. How do you wade through all of this research? Because I'm sure there's some research out there that is quite biased. And then you have the unbiased research. And how can you separate those out? Because some industries could implement research to suggest that they don't have any harming effects on the environment, whereas other scientists would suggest otherwise. Um, then you deal with probabilities, and the argument is that there's a low probability effect on a particular outcome. Yeah, there is always the question of whether the message has been tainted by the messenger. And I think you know, as a social scientist or someone who takes the scientific method seriously, you do have to look at the sources and look at the sources of funding and look at whether or not results can be replicated. Have they been replicated? Are they very sensitive to the modeling assumptions? You know, on both sides of it. I mean, when you look at models that say, you know, you can do climate change for free, well, only if you assume people are adopting new technologies and disposing of their capital prematurely. And, you know, that doesn't make sense because people just don't leave their cars and buy a, a brand new hybrid. Some people do, but not the majority of people until the car wears out. So you can't overassume technology adoption. But at the same time, you can't presume that uh, new technologies aren't going to exist. So for me, that is... That's always the challenge of trying to figure out where the key assumptions are on both sides of the story and what's driving things. And 
trying to whittle it down to you know the key factors, whether it's climate change or endangered species, that seem to really sit at the core. And you can then get an idea of if somebody's trying to manipulate costs and benefits or the political economy of it by how well they start trying to push the uh, core assumptions around. And that's what I try to keep an eye on. And if I get a feeling that they're trying to manipulate one of these core elements, then I'm, I'm a little less sympathetic to their cause. What about the data? Because in some climate prediction models, you know, it's very hard to predict unless we extrapolate based on some of the results that we have, how the environment is warming. But, you know, with such low probability events occurring, we do have the possibility of a high impact event, just like a meteor strike on the planet Earth. That's a very low probability outcome, but it is distinctly possible with devastating effect. Well, I think that in some ways is why they've pulled together over the years what's called the Energy Modeling Forum in which every summer they meet over a week, two-week period, depending, in which uh, the previous year all these different modelers with all their different approaches have tried to estimate the same scenario. And they've come at it from a bottoms-up, tops-down, in the middle, you know, simulation models, general equilibrium models, optimal control models, you name them. But then they all get together and talk about their results and try to get an idea of the potential range of damages. Are they minus infinity to infinity? Are they somewhere between 1% and 2%? And so you've got the best minds thinking about these models, all willing to then go for a common task to then see how well things hold together. And to me, I, I'm much appreciative of that process and the fact that they are willing to put their models on the line, and then argue about them. And hopefully it gets better. That's from the economic side. On the idea of low probability, high severity events, I mean, nothing is harder to manage policy-wise in a rational way than those because, you know, rationally we're supposed to think about them like expected utility optimizers where we think about probabilities and outcomes simultaneously and we make the adjustments but typically policymakers or anybody when you see a low probability high severity event you disconnect probabilities and outcomes and you think about the one that either makes you happiest like winning the lottery or one that scares you the most like the gulf stream shifting and then a lot of times the probabilities of those events don't register as much as the size of the severity and in a lot of cases, that can affect behavior. And then the question is whether or not when you aggregate that behavioral bias up, we all, you know, you talk a lot about behavioral economics these days. You know, as we aggregate that bias up, does it survive in a marketplace? Does it survive in a policy scenario? I know when I was in the White House, Janet Yellen was chair of the Economic Advisors at the time. She's now chair of the Fed here in the U.S. And... After talking to her about climate change a lot, what finally sort of lodged in her brain that made the most difference is when I talked about the low probability, high severity event of the Gulf Stream shifting. And that registered more than talking about malaria moving up from the south. There's sort of these more likely events that are less severity and, and you can think about adapting and you can make changes. But the things you don't control or the things that are outside your control typically uh, have the biggest impact on you, whether they're voluntary or involuntary, controllable, uncontrollable. And you know that's something I've been looking at for the last 30 years based on thinking about risks of nuclear power, thinking about pesticide risks. I mean, they're all related in the sense that if something goes wrong, it can go really wrong. 
but the odds of it going wrong are fairly low. So let's, how do we deal with it? But, you know, the psychologists way back when, Slavic and Liechtenstein and all those guys started identifying those low probability, high severity events. But it's always stuck in my brain, you know, that this is really a behavioral phenomenon that really does matter even in aggregation, because people are consistently separating out probabilities from outcomes. Where do we go with this? Does it begin with government or does it begin at a very micro level with the individual who is ultimately responsible for their behavior and actions? Like, Do we have to start making buying decisions and choices? Or as you mentioned there, there's a in behavioral economics, we have the whole concept of nudging now, which is the new buzzword. Where do we go? I don't know if we can nudge ourselves back from the brink. We can make changes that will, you know, allow people to let their instincts move them in the right way. But, you know, even before we started calling nudging, there's always this notion that, you know, the target is the target and costs are regrettable, but not really decisive. You know, that's an old saying by Thomas Sewell that stuck with me as well in the sense of, when non-economists are looking at an issue, you know, they, they have a target. We understand it's costly, but that's not the decisive factor. The, essentially, they're saying the benefits are infinite in their opinion. And so if you look at it that way, then it becomes a very much a political process. But if you're waiting for people to do the right thing for the right reason, you can wait a long time. I mean, I think, you know, we've seen that throughout history. And I think most cultures would agree that, you know, waiting for everybody just to be good Samaritans, yeah, it happens, but not all the time and not always in predictable ways. So economists would say, well, if you want to do the right thing at the right time, let's get the prices right. And then people will make their own choices, but if you get the prices to reflect true costs and reveal hidden costs that are being imposed on others, then hopefully we don't have to job on them and uh, maybe we can nudge them, but if we can nudge them and get the price right, Maybe uh, that we need both. I don't. I don't think one's a substitute for the other. I, I would see them as pretty much complementary, complementary, rather than uh, as saying, "Well, we're going to replace good understanding of price theory with simple behavioral rules or even complex behavioral rules." You just triggered a, a thought there in my mind. The whole idea of a rational person. The definition of Homo economicus is really somebody who has a motive to maximize a, a profitable outcome irrespective of who they actually hurt. Are we acting rationally in terms of the environment or would we be better off acting irrationally based on that definition? Because People would say we're acting irrationally. You know, it's quite confusing there. It's just something I, I thought just triggered if you wanted to help me try and clear my mind. Well, the way I think about it is, you know, rationality in psychology is very different than rationality in economics in that when we think about rationality in economics, we think of it as a social construct, right? People are making choices within an active exchange institution like a market. And if they start letting their emotions run wild, well, then there are people to arbitrage them. And so either they can like less money to more or they adjust and they start looking for opportunities themselves. And so it's not so much that we all have to be 100% rational. It's just that the folks at the margin who are making those trades, as long as they're paying attention, the market is powerful enough to sort of move it along like everybody was rational, but they don't have to be. 
And so the problem with environmental goods, of course, is we don't have markets like that. So now we have to figure out the problem of how to aggregate up in a way that would incorporate both economic monetary decisions and economic non-monetary decisions. And that becomes trickier. And what I've witnessed over the last 30 years is when I first started, really the only thing economists were dealing with in terms of aversions was risk aversion. Typically, that's the only thing people were averse of. And then Kahneman and Tversky came, and now we were averse to losses, and we treated gains and losses differently. And over the last 30 years, we have become averse to just about everything. Ambiguity, inflation aversion, equity aversion, disappointment aversion, envy aversion, lying aversion, guilt aversion. And so by adding in all these emotions into our typical economic model, the question is, how and when do we stop? Do we turn homo economicus? into, uh, do we add all 40 emotions into our models? And now how do we sort out cross-partial derivatives between equity and envy and disappointment and suspicion and regret? And those are jobs that economists typically have not been trained to deal with, uh, you know, assigning complementarities or substitutabilities between different emotional factors. And so part of this working on nudges is trying to understand, okay, if we tweak the model so that we can take advantage of how people feel guilty about this or how they opt in or opt out about different things. Um, we can exploit that irrationality, quote unquote, for the good, right? The people like status quo. All right, let's take advantage of that. So instead of when you buy a airplane ticket, nowadays you have to opt in to adding a carbon price or you can buy a carbon offset. Well, probably what we should do if we really took that seriously is get all the airlines to make people opt out of buying that carbon offset. And given our tendencies not to want to opt out of things, we would probably buy a whole lot more carbon offsets. So if we can exploit those at the same time as having an active market for those offsets and a price, then I think it's not irrational or rational or one or the other. It's understanding that there are some instinctual behavior that people at a ground level will stick with. And that's the whole soft paternalism idea that, you know, we know, you know what's right, and we're just designing the system to help you get there as opposed to us telling you what's right. So it gets a little tricky. And in my own brain, I get a little convoluted because I've never been one to want to pick one emotion at a time. And, you know, because I'm not sure I'm qualified enough to trim away all the other emotions that exist in that decision and say, this is the emotion that's driving uh, homo economicus away from our rational baseline. I mean, it's going to take a, a while for us to say, all right, here are the 10 emotions that we can live with, and let's just work on those. These are the 10 big ones. You questioned the whole idea of economic rationality, and you wanted to find some inspiration in non-economic disciplines like English literature. And from that, then you, I suppose you tapped back into your mindset or your musical mindset. So talking about all those emotions you just mentioned here, I suppose they all come together as a musician. And that opens up a whole new context in terms of your music that you actually write and compose. Yeah, I think you made the transition fairly accurately. I mean, I spent most of my life before becoming a PhD economist as a musician, then becoming an economist, sort of focusing in on the rational side. And then once I started getting back to thinking about behavioral economics and all that, 
you know, you start thinking, well, if I really want to understand human behavior, who should I read? Shakespeare? Or should I read Gary Becker? Right? Two very different, distinct views on human nature and how things are organized and how things play a role in terms of interactions between people. And um, neither of them are wrong, I don't think. Neither of them are, have a the lock on the truth. But once you start opening up that door to say, well, you know, I mean, if we really want to study emotions, we should study literature. If you really want to be economical about how people think, then you should study poetry. And if you want to then convey all that in a compact form that people will pay attention to, you're at music. And now you've got a, a melody and, and lyrics and you have a path for essentially projecting what you consider to be an important story to tell. And uh, I guess I hadn't really thought about it analytically before because I just do it. But in a way, that's sort of the open door rather than trying to add an emotion to an economic model. I might as well throw the whole kitchen sink in and see if I can convey this the sensation in a... It's definitely not a closed-form model, but, I mean, songwriting has its structures and its forms that are you could easily translate into, um, you know, guidelines and rules and math models just like we do in economics. So, uh, to me, they're arts and science are, I don't even know if they're yin and yang. To me, they just go parallel and spill over all over each other. Why did you leave music for such a long time? Personally, I would have seen it as a form of escapism based on a lot of the work that you actually do. And did you only realize that of late, that this is something that you wholeheartedly enjoy and find it as a, a fantastic way of maybe going back to your roots in terms of Minnesota and Wyoming and you as a younger person who would have had that band, I, I can't even pronounce it, Fligapoikierna. Fligapoikierna, yeah, that's the Swedish for the Flyboys. That's where my ancestors are from. Sjogren is a Swedish name. The original was S-J-O with umlauts, Hvigren. And so when I grew up in northern Minnesota, it's kind of like, you know, dis displaced Scandinavia with Norwegians and Swedes and, and also, you know, Nordics countries, Finland and, and uh, lots of different Scandinavian roots. So my connection came through that way and I spent the year in like I say, in uh, Sweden, and and then I spent another year there with working for the king up in Umeå and then Stockholm, and my wife's Swedish, and so I, yeah, I'm pretty much straddle both worlds. I guess going back to your question about why did I give it up when I did is, is I found that at the time as learning economics, because it is, it is a science and a discipline, that by doing music it kept crowding out the ability to assume rational behavior and consistency and, and choice and all the models that we learned in graduate school which are focused on these rational choices. Every time I introduced the music into that, it, it chased out my ability to say, okay, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume people are rational. It's a necessary fiction to understand how people act inside institutions. And once I got on top of that ball more and felt more comfortable with it and realized economics was sort of heading back towards this behavioral world, I was like, well, I've already been there. I've already spent a lot of time there. And um, I, I might as well open those doors up again. And when I did, it was like 
you know, I had just closed the door five minutes ago. And as soon as I opened it back up, it was like filled all up. And, and then I realized over the years that a lot of my best friends in economics are musicians too. And I only found that out as you meet people and you find a connection with them fairly quickly. And then I realized, Oh, that, that guy's a guitar player. That guy's a mandolin player, plays a bazooki or, you know, so a lot of my, my best friends ultimately were musicians too. And so I don't know what, what it is about them, something about their outlook on life that permeated through the economic rationality, uh, you know, veneer. And, uh, that was fairly poetic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So nowadays, uh, yeah. So we, we do economics and we do music and we kind of do the economics or the music like we do the economics. People come and go and work with lots of folks who are interested in songwriting and interested in music in general. And, you know, the band is not really so much a band as it is a bunch of roving players who come in and come out and jump on and jump off. And uh, it's fairly flexible and I kind of enjoy the, the ability to essentially... Um, Surf is what I like to think about it, going over all these different waves and stay on the board if you can. I think it's just solid economics for those people who might be undecided. It's a fun, entertaining subject <laughs> or discipline. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting. I mean, you know, a lot of musicians really have not had much economic training in terms of trade-offs and scarcity. And once they start describing all their problems, I'm like, well... That's exactly what we do and we study in terms of you've set up a constraint and now people got to figure their way out of it in your song here and now they've come up with some creative solution. Well, that's exactly what we do in economics. And they're like, oh, but you do it in math. And I said, well, sometimes, yeah. I, I love your website, jshogren.com, the, the one with the music. It's absolutely fantastic. I listen to quite a few songs, actually. If you click onto the tab of shows on it, you've given us a fantastic free eight songs you've given us free to listen to. It's absolutely amazing and really, really catchy, especially the one called Works. You have a YouTube link on it there, too. Um, five albums and the artwork, I have to say, is phenomenal, too. And you actually take a great picture, to be honest. <laughs> well, I have great photographers. One guy, Johan Bergmark, is out of Stockholm, and he specializes in... Uh, so a lot of the movies that you'll see coming out of Sweden, it's his pictures on the front cover. My wife contacted him and said, I want you to take a picture of Jay. And she said, Ma, I don't want to do any of these wedding photos. And he goes, no, 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 nothing like that. Just take a picture. So working with him has been a charm. And then uh, fellows over here in the U.S., Mike Venata and... Uh, Brian Harrington here in, in Laramie and different places. Uh, these guys, these guys are good, and it's fun to work with them. And then I work with Aaron Edge on the uh, design stuff, and he's out of Portland. And Aaron is a, it's an amazing heavy metal guitarist, drummer. You know, he's got more tattoos than than I, than I can ever imagine. And uh, but we have this. He knows what I'm trying to get across, and he. he pleasure working with these other creative people in ways that I can't I can't get my head around but sure do enjoy working with love only works it only works in this world bring me down bring me down
Who would your influencers be in terms of your music? You describe as Catawampus Americana. Yeah, I, I've never heard of Catawampus. Is that like Mumford and Sons and all those other bands? Yeah, yeah. Catawampus is just kind of you know come what may. Um, but I would say Mumford and Sons these days, you know, their style of sort of this. I, I love the Mumford and Sons style, which is to me always kind of reminds me of some English king rallying the troops around the campfire, and all of a sudden they're on the top of the hill, and all of a sudden they're screaming down the hill as they, you know, uh, attack the French or they're attacking each other or whatever. And then afterwards they're kind of going through the battlefield. That's what every Mumford song reminds me of. These, these sort of you know Henry the Fifth style. Uh, Come on, everybody, we can do it. My songs aren't always that way. They got maybe a little more darker Scandinavian uh, tilt to them where if something can go wrong, it will. And then the question is, how do people recover from it? I like your song, Me and Genghis Khan as well. So you have that fiery soldier in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, Me and Genghis Khan is... That's the thing about songwriting is if you find a phrase that sticks in your head, um, that's one that stuck in my head for 20 years and I couldn't get rid of it. And so finally I just wrote it down and now i you know it, it's not in my head anymore but i think that's how probably a lot of art gets done and that was one of them uh, that just finally even after doing econ it just opened it up and then there it was and so beats me just the way it works what's the most memorable festival you actually played at would it be no woodstock or what snowy range um well the biggest one is snowy range here in laramie um the most fun i think is what fest it's uh, basically a free festival here in Wyoming that we pull together, you know, 40, 45 bands. My friends run it, and, you know, I'm not necessarily the oldest person there at Wetfest, but I'm one of the elder statesmen uh, playing, and so it's just fun to go and hang out at the river and play music for two days, and everybody is just coming in from all over Wyoming and Colorado, and that's enjoyable. And uh, I put a little festival on myself at the end of August, bringing in as much talent as I can get up to the little town that I've lived at for the last 20 years, Centennial, and put that on for free. That one's a blast, too. I mean, I, you get to meet folks, and it's just a nice, enjoyable day. It's not one of these Bonnaroo or, or Wembley Stadium or something like that where you got hundreds of thousands of people. It's all just trying to make it more, you know, people can meet everybody and hang out and just have a good time. When school's out, you'll be partying like all those students. <laughs> Going to the festivals, you've got eight tour dates, and I was hoping that there might be some international tour dates there, but not yet, anyway. No, that, you know, it's tricky getting international tour dates. It's tricky to line up enough to do it, and especially, you know, since I 
it'd be easier if I had a tour manager. So if you want to, if you need a new job, I, I could use a, a booking agent over in Europe. So if you've got a series of pubs in Ireland, I'm there. Yeah, I, well, I'm telling you the truth, you would go down really, really well here in Ireland. Yeah, I spent a month hitchhiking in Ireland way back in 85. And I started up, of all places, in Larne, went up through the causeway, then all the way down the whole West Coast and... uh it was a great month of hitchhiking and Guinness and rain and people and adventure. Yeah, so I'm I'm ready to come again. A lot of the towns and counties here in Ireland, they have Scandinavian names. Yeah. Well, I'm from Wexford and uh, that was called Wexfjord. There was a J in there and we dropped the J and I'm living in Waterford, which is Waterfjord. So they all have those uh, fjords as such. Yeah. Um, so I have a friend as well, musician friend, Gordon Barry, and he has a couple of songs and EPs and albums as well. And I was just communicating with him and talking about yourself. And I was saying your music is very much like his too. Yeah, there's uh, definitely people here that would definitely love to meet up and do a tour date. I might even hold an economic rockstar conference and have you speak and then uh, party for us in the evening time. <laughs> Yeah, why not? I mean, it's supposed to be fun. You're supposed to live and learn and and try to pass on something better. And sometimes it's ideas and sometimes it's ideas through songs. And uh, my son actually spent uh, six months a couple years ago in Wexford. Uh, He was an exchange student over there and I met him in Dublin. He was old enough to drink. I could buy him his first beer legally there, and so we had a good time. Great, great. I'll be back anytime. You just let me know. Jason, who would your main influencers be in terms of economics? Uh, In terms of economics, I think the guys who got to me first, well, Tom Crocker, obviously, but then Vernon Smith and Charlie Plott, both of them who I'd call economists interested in experiments and using the experimental method as a way to really understand the integration of behavior and institutions in a way you could manipulate the institutions and you could understand how people reacted under different allocation rules. And I think what appealed to me about that is there is a lot of art in the design of experiments because there's a million ways you can go wrong and there's a million ways that you've got to make a choice And there's no real closed-ended solution like if you were, say, writing a paper for Journal of Economic Theory where you've got your axioms and everything are laid out. You have a set of principles, but it is a judgment call as to what's salient for people, what is close enough to the real world to be relevant. And, And I would say Vernon and Charlie and the way they approached it and the way they were able to articulate how important replication was and how important the movement between context and control really was. Their way of looking at economics changed you know, my whole perspective from how to be able to make a contribution. Prior to that, I'd been focusing more on theory and thinking about theory, and I realized I was not necessarily uh, going to be a highbrow theorist. I was going to be an applied theorist. And once I found experiments, then I knew how to apply it, how to work on it. So, yeah, those guys those guys are amazing, both in person and in writing. And, and one of my great pleasures has been able to um, – meet and talk with them both on numerous occasions and just listen to them, listen and learn. You have an extensive list of research and you've obviously delved into many of the economic aspects that I've actually mentioned earlier on in the introduction. Is there one particular theory that really stands out for you as, I suppose, 
brings it all together and makes sense in terms of your work? Yeah, I would say way back when, um, Tom Crocker introduced me to a paper by Ehrlich and Becker on self-protection and self-insurance, essentially endogenous risk. And the idea being that people invest to change the lotteries they face in life. And once I started looking at economics from that perspective, then you would see a lot of models in which the states of nature were independent, whatever we could do. And that, to me, seemed a little too fatalistic for how we spend our resources and how we invest. And for me, most environmental policy is a lottery anyway, because we can't guarantee that somebody is going to live or not get sick based on exposure. I mean, we have an estimate and safe minimum standards and this sort of thing, but there's no guarantee. So you're really talking about policies at a collective level that are moving probability around and moving damages around and you have investment at a private level in which you're doing the same thing and so what sort of struck me is asking people about their value of reducing risk and them giving me zero I'm like why would they give me zero I mean this is a real risk and going one level deeper they're like well no I don't value it at zero I value the collective reduction at zero because I took care of it myself and Moving that to climate change, moving that to endangered species, moving that to any type of health risk, pandemics, uh, invasive species. I don't know. Pick a problem, and most likely it's got some element of endogenous risk into it. And once you add that element to it, the model gets a little richer. And then as the model gets a little richer, you can explain a little more behavior. And to me, that's... That's kind of how I've looked at it all. And now by adding the behavioral elements to it, the question is what drives things more? Technology of reducing risk or tastes? How do they work together? How do they work apart? And so if you can strip it down to that level, then you can really look at a lot of different problems using that type of kit. And it's very flexible. And hopefully, you know, that's the reason we've been able to look at lots of different things because my students are interested in, say, Topic X. And we'll talk about Topic X in light of this endogenous risk sort of framework, and pretty soon it makes sense to them, and off they go. And then all of a sudden we're thinking about Topic X. And, uh, yeah, otherwise you just it'd be too scattered. But, you know, underneath it all, I have a theory, or, I mean, I, ha I work with this theory. It might not be clear to the outside observer all the time. If you were the economic advisor for the Obama administration right now, would there be one thing that you would recommend they take on now, whether it's to do with endangered species or the environment or anything else, if you were given the opportunity? Yeah, I guess the first thing I'd do is uh, <laughs> figure out how to get a carbon tax in place. I don't know if it's going to happen through the Senate and through the House of Representatives, given they're all run by the Republicans now for the most part. But... That would be the first thing. The second thing would be to actually take on the Endangered Species Act because it's been waiting to be revised now almost for 22 years. It's sort of in a holding pattern because the way the thing is written is that any species has to be protected at any cost. And obviously that type of pressure cooker can hold without an economy bursting at the seams. And so What's been happening is people have been letting off steam on Endangered Species Act in an ad hoc, you know, sort of squeaky wheel kind of way. And it seems like it would really be worth it to go through it and try to figure out how to add safety valves in a systematic and coherent way. I don't know, maybe it, maybe it would all explode. Maybe they don't want to spend their political capital on it. But in the U.S., 
the Endangered Species Act right now. It is the most powerful environmental law we have, and they can shut down any development or allow any development to go based on what happens based on that act. And it, it's just too important just to let it sit there willy-nilly and people using discretion as to when it holds and when it doesn't. Can I ask you three more quick questions, if possible, Jason? Sure. Uh, I don't mean to be nosy. You have a whiteboard behind you with some numbers. I don't know if that's yours. If they are, what are you working on at the moment? <laughs> oh, I've always been interested in setting up institutional rules that allow people to be extremely self-interested. You know, I, I like to set up the rules to create the people we assume are going to exist in them and then see if those rules are, are so stringent, no society would ever allow that type of institution to exist. And so this particular one is set up for thinking about a tournament like a golf tournament where the payoffs are nonlinear. The winner gets, say, $200 and second place gets 100 and then down to 20 and 5 and 1. And seeing if we can set up some of these games where social preferences emerge and I'm nice to you and you're nice to me and I worry about you and you worry about me and all that sort of stuff. And you put these people in a tournament setting and you can find that, you know, I'm still nice to you, but I'm not going to look out for you. I'm going to look out for myself. And so uh, we're interested in putting these on different experimental games that generate self social preferences or constrained or bounded self-interest or constrained self-interest and see if we can really push people to be as self-interested as possible. Because, you know, we are. And the question is under what circumstances, you know, if there's only so much room on the lifeboat, who gets on? That's kind of the question I'm always interested in because social preferences out of context, you know, it's hard to make big statements about economics when, when they're out of context. I mean, of course, everybody's nice to everybody on certain days, you know. So that's one thing we're working on. Uh, other things we're working on have been pandemic work, trying to understand how people think about trade-offs and pandemic risks versus environmental risks versus say, terrorist risks and things that people are familiar with in terms of the media. You know, we get bombarded with different environmental risks every day and different threats every day. And pandemics slip under the radar a lot of times until there's a big shock like Ebola. What we did is run a sort of natural experiment where we talked to people and then the Ebola outbreak happened this last six months ago and then we interviewed uh, another set of people afterwards, and you can definitely see how exposure to these events just changed the value of statistical life, I think, from an implicit $1 million up to $17 million, given that a Ebola scare happened. So people really sticks in their brain. The question is, what, what kind of decay rate that sort of stuff has, and how does that fit in? So, yeah, we're, we're doing a lot of that, and it should be interesting. We've got a busy summer working on that kind of things, and playing music, going fishing. Sounds great fun. Yeah. yeah. Do you have a recommended book that you'd actually like to share with us? A book? Well, I would say uh, if you're really interested in um, a book that I've read lately that that I really liked, Philip Levine. That's an old – Philip Levine was a, is a poet. He died this last year. I love his poetry. It's it's amazing. He's very uh, concrete and takes a very interesting perspective on the working life. And, um, yeah, what work is, that's the one. It's it's an old one. It's 20 years old or so. And, but um, it's one that I've really enjoyed lately. I'd love if you could share a takeaway with our listeners to influence them on how to approach life or to go ahead and get things done. 
<laughs> yeah, I guess as a younger man, everybody sort of hits this wall of maturity that you don't really want to go through. And sometimes you get forced through it, and sometimes you walk through it, and sometimes you fall through it. Once you get there and, and you decide you can't control the universe, it's a good place to be. At the same time, you take care of what you can't control. You know, it's the oldest story in the book. I mean, you know, and once you come to that realization, you find that balance. Things are just way more, way more interesting, way easier to deal with and, and just in general happier. But, you know, being a good Scandinavian doesn't mean I don't have my gloomy dark moments, you know, so. They were fantastic lyrics. I'd like to, actually I'd like to listen to that to music. Which one? Just what you said there. It, it, it was quite lyrical. Well, it's... Deep and philosophical. Yeah, well, I like to think of economics as applied philosophy. You know, sometimes we get confused with folks on Wall Street, and then all we're worried about is money and wealth. And not really. We're interested in well-being, and we're interested in markets and non-market exchange. We're, I'm interested in biology. I'm interested in the whole intersection, and I find that my work is most fun for me, I can't say the rest of the world, when I'm operating in boundaries across disciplines and because now I get a chance to see where economics can make a difference and why we don't make a difference when we try to communicate why our ideas matter. Jason, thank you so much for being so inspiring and for joining me in Economic Rockstar. I had a blast and I personally learned a lot from you. Love the conversation about music something I'm quite personally passionate about. And I would love for people to check out your website, jshogland.com, listen to the music, buy it on CD, baby, iTunes, absolutely worth your while. And if you're in the Wyoming area, there are tickets still available for them June and July and August shows. So um, check them out. Definitely, if I was there myself, I'd be taking a trip and front row seat or uh, sitting on a bale of hay or whatever it might be. Yeah, well, tonight we're playing with good friend of mine Jalon Crossland he is Mr. Wyoming music and we're playing down in Colorado so we're invading the neighboring state and uh, it's the last day of finals and so uh, everything's wrapping up here and we're going to go down there and play a show and just kind of enjoy the evening and so I want to thank you for actually doing this and talking to folks as uh, you know as folks you know economists have an interesting perspective on the world in the sense that we're willing to and able to put a dollar value on most everything and anything and sometimes that makes it a little confusing as to what exactly we do for a living so I appreciate the effort you're going through to communicate that to folks thank you very much Jason I don't want nothing
share with our listeners where they could find you. I know I mentioned jshogan.com. Is there anywhere else? Oh, yeah, I guess if, you know, you type in Jason Shogun, University of Wyoming, you'll find me there. And uh, if you ever get to Wyoming and drive out to Centennial, um, you know, there's 100 people and four bars. You'll be able to find us there, too. We're, we're usually around. So you have a 1% chance of finding a... One percent chance, well, twenty-five percent chance. Given there's four four bars, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but they're they're good probabilities. Yeah, well, see, and I would consider them more like Irish pubs than bars because it has that community feel, and you know, people will break out guitars and start singing, and you know, it's 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 much more like the time you know when you go around and everybody shows up and everybody has a pint and they're talking about whatever and all of a sudden people start singing out of nowhere you're like well where does that come from so it's kind of the same sort of feeling lovely you can find all the links to jason at economicrockstar.com forward slash jason shogren jason thank you so much for being so generous with your time you are truly an economic rock star <laughs> thanks frank <laughs> much you're more than welcome. You can now put that as part of your some of your accolades with the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I think this one's way more fun. So, <laughs> <laughs> but Al Gore isn't sharing this one. No, Al Gore is not sharing this one. Well, I always say that you know it's Al Gore and then the IPCC, and there's about two thousand, three thousand scientists on the IPCC, and what they actually sent us was a, a plastic keychain with a photocopied picture of Alfred Nobel in it. And so it's a nice thing that I hang up here on, on my, uh, I've got this crow statue that I hang it from just as, as a nice reminder that science is rewarding on lots of different levels and, and it all boils down to people for me, so. Great, fantastic. Jason, I'm glad you're so happy with the reward anyway and it's on the crow. Maybe I'll send you a keychain with Economic Rockstar on it too. <laughs> I'll have to send it out to you now. Now that yeah, I've said it. You might have to send those out, exactly. All the best and have a great night. Okay, you too. Thanks, Frank. Thanks very much. All the best. Bye. Bye. As a younger man, everybody sort of hits this wall of maturity that you don't really want to go through and sometimes you get forced through it and sometimes you walk through it and sometimes you fall through it. Once you get there and and you decide you can't control the universe, it's a good place to be. If there's only so much room on the lifeboat, who gets on? That's kind of the question I'm always interested in. I am the retriever Lay down your fears On the ground I've seen more than I believe in Two white horses pulling him into town Little brother death You're much too polite No reason to be digging in this frozen ground tonight I've broken every vow Except one I am the retriever Lift up your soul To the 
sky I've seen more than I believe in Two white feathers floating past my eyes You're much too kind Gonna have to pass on your bottle of wine I've broken every vow Except one Except one 